Hi, I'm Stacey Schmicker-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Every other week, we sit down with the stars of the design world to learn about their journey, where they are now, how they got here, and what they've learned along the way. Together, we'll get inspired, hear behind the stories from some of the world's most notable hospitality projects, hear the ups and downs of creating a business, and dive headfirst into all things design. From architects and designers to hoteliers and entrepreneurs, and all the multifaceted talents in between. Join me to meet the passionate people who make up this industry. That's something like, I think particularly interesting in this digital AI universe that we now inhabit is that I've realized that true beauty requires small imperfections. In those little imperfections, there's the humanity. Hi, I'm here with Lewis Thompson of Nomadic Resorts. Hi, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm good. Thanks, Stacey. Very nice to be on your show and much appreciated. So we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I I was born in Cambridge in the UK, uh, but I spent a lot of my childhood in Devon uh, at a Steiner school. So that's one thing I have in common with my business partner, Olav, is we uh, we both went to Steiner schools and probably had a little bit more flexible education than most people, I guess. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that for those that don't know what that is. Oh, <laughs> well, actually, I went to an experimental school, so we didn't actually have to go to lessons. And uh, I was pretty privileged in a way as a boarding school, but it was um, in the most fabulous part of Devon in, in the UK. which And they had this huge estate. So we'd just run around the woods making dens and kind of causing havoc and riding around on BMXs. So it was a pretty good childhood. And our main class was in uh, organic gardening. So that was a little bit different from most people, I think. Yeah. Were you a good gardener? That's an interesting question. I think uh, (laughs) I've been called many things. I've been called super gardener was one of my titles. But actually, technically, as a gardener, no, I'm not that good. (laughs) I'm good at designing gardens, but, you know, yeah, okay. I'm, you know, I can take a cutting or whatever, but I'm not, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm as good as some of the gardeners I know, put it like that. Do you think this education kind of put you on a track, this creative track that you've been on for most of your career? Yeah, I think almost certainly. I think in terms of the kind of liberty of expression that we had at that school, uh, we had a lot of kind of uh, woodworking, arts and crafts types of activities, which were considered an equal footing to academic studies. Um, so I, I think, yeah, that almost certainly has affected uh, my my development and my career, I'm sure. Um, and so you went to this school, this very kind of, you know, experimental school. What Did you go after that to like a more formal uh, college education or? Actually, yeah, I did. Uh, I actually went from that school. I went to the direct and complete opposite. And uh, I went to rugby school, which is a very posh private school for uh you know, neo-fascists, I guess. <laughs> no, I'm <only> joking. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I went to a very strict uh, school that was very well known for bullying, actually. Uh, oh, I wasn't what? bullied particularly myself, but it was a real tough school. It was where they invented the game of rugby. So there was a whole kind of very macho vibe, basically. What drew you there? Or was this not of your own choice? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, I played rugby and I was quite, you know, I played rugby when I was a child. And I think, you know, the idea of going there and playing rugby for rugby school was probably what motivated me. But uh, in retrospect, I probably should have given my parents a little bit more say in the things, I think. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I had a good time, so I can't complain. Yeah, nice. Um, so what did you study there? 
Uh, I studied A-levels and then I actually, I have a kind of unusual academic career. I went on to study uh, French and European politics. So um, I'm glad I didn't stick that one out because as a Brit in <laughs> my career would have been like torpedoed at Brexit time. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm kind of glad I didn't pursue that much further. But yeah, I did my uh, my degree at the University of Sussex, my first degree in, in uh, European politics. Got it. So how did you get end up in like the design, hospitality, architecture world that you now, you know, that you get went into? It's a little bit of a weird story, but uh, I, the first part of the story is fairly straightforward. So uh, for my year abroad uh, at university, I was sent to Reunion Island, which is next to Mauritius in the south of the Indian Ocean, but it's okay. a part of France. So uh, I studied uh, I studied for one year over there, and then I decided actually I wasn't didn't really want to do the European politics route at all. And so I I finished my degree, and then I went back with my wife and. Uh, and I did my hospitality management degree in France. And this is back in 1999, making me feel really old now. Uh, and, and what was slightly strange about that experience was that I uh, I was asked to prepare a business plan. My business plan was for a zero carbon hiking lodge in the mountains of Reunion Island. And this was a long time before that was trendy. Um, and then, you know, one thing led to another. And then I... Uh, I ended up sending a spontaneous letter of application to a guy called Sonushiv Dasani, mm-hmm. who was the, uh, at the time he was the CEO of Six Senses and Soniva. And it was a little bit, you know, a, a kind of, uh, yeah, long shot for sure. Uh, but I did actually write a pretty coherent letter and I kind of studied what he was trying to do. And to cut a long story short, I was, um, I was employed by him and sent to the Maldives to be, do permaculture design in one of his, resorts at the time called Sonova Gili, which was a, a fabulous resort. Um, now it's called uh, Lankanfushi Gili. I think it's still one of the best resorts in the world, actually. Yeah. And what was that? What were those early days like there? Because they were ahead of their time, right? I mean, in terms of looking at sustainability and just, you know, a holistic approach to, you know, to, to design and architecture that wasn't being done widely, you know, throughout the, throughout the industry. Yeah, well, the whole start of that experience was a little bit of a weird one. Uh, so when I got to Son of a Gilly with my 18-month-old son and my wife, uh, I started designing this uh, farm-to-fork restaurant there and doing an organic vegetable garden. And uh, <laughs> within, yeah, a month of being being in that place, I heard this huge noise, like a kind of jumbo jet. And I was like, well, that's a bit strange because there aren't any jumbo jets around here this is in the desert island in the middle of the Maldives and then suddenly this water started flowing underneath the vegetable garden you know, through the vegetable garden like a lot of water and then the fence collapsed and a whole huge wave kind of washed the vegetable garden out from under my feet and that was uh, that was the 2004 tsunami okay. um, so yeah that was uh, that was kind of a, a baptism of water or Baptism of fire, you see, I don't know. Uh, so a pretty scary experience. But yeah. what happened after that was really weird. I was playing pool in the evenings with the guys who were in the construction department, and uh, they adopted me, basically, and said, do you want to help us rebuild the resort? Because, you know, there had been villas washed out to sea, all the landscape was screwed, everything was in a bit of a mess. And so that was really the start of my career at Six Senses and Soniva was was a, a landscape regeneration problem a, uh, project at Soniva Gili, and uh, 
and we rebuilt the resort together. And these guys taught me yeah, the nuts and bolts of uh, overwater villa construction. Wow. You got, got thrown into it head first, but it must have been an amazing experience. I mean, after something very terrible, an amazing experience out of it. Yeah, but that also brought me quite close. You know, I got close contact with Sonu and worked with his design team and his development team. And uh, and that was a very exciting time at Six Senses. Uh, that was 2004 to like 2010. That was a, a crazy cool time. There was a lot of new projects, a lot of new developments. And we were really pushing the boundaries of sustainability in the hospitality industry at that time. So I helped with them to develop their um, holistic uh, environmental management project, uh, which is called Hemp, which is a good name. Um, and then we also did the kind of technical services um, requirements for the sustainability thing. So I, I got really exposed to some very clever people, um, some very, you know, uh, pioneering ideas about sustainability. And uh, yeah, and I just carried on. I, I, I worked with them for like eight years. Yeah. What was your biggest takeaway from the time there? Um, I think, you know, probably um, it was really this kind of innovative approach to the guest experience. And I, I think, you know, there I really, I, I really kind of honed my skills by, by learning from someone who is actually a, a master creator of guest experience. Um, so I think that was probably the main thing that uh, I took away from the whole experience was the whole, um, you know, design process. So I, you know, I wasn't in the design industry. So I learned, you know, from, from conception all the way through to construction and pre-opening. And that was a hell of a lesson for me and, uh, and has stood me in good, good stead since actually. Yeah. And didn't you like, wasn't that the time I remember a conversation we had a while back? Like, didn't you start like treetop dining too? And like how to figure that out? Yeah, that's, that's right. So that was, uh, you know, I'd been working at Son of Akiri for, I guess, three and a half years. And I was asked to do a design competition for a zero carbon eco villa and a treetop dining pod. So I, uh, I'd made this design competition and I, I, I wrote the brief and I sent it to all of the kind of, major treehouse people, which was pretty cool because I still know many of them now. Um, and I got the most extraordinary feedback. I got, you know, people wrote whole volumes. It was like 100-page documents that they sent back, incredible stuff. And then the one that won was just two pages and a really good hand sketch. It wasn't it actually it wasn't even that good a hand sketch, to be honest, but it was, uh, it was just a fabulous idea. So I remember pitching it to Bernard Bonnenberger and Sonu at a kind of um, – yeah, it was kind of a nice lunch party, actually. And to my surprise, uh, they just turned around and said, yeah, okay, let's do it. Uh, didn't ask me a budget, didn't ask me a time frame. They just said, okay, that looks cool. That looks like it's going to work. Uh, so that was my first experience working directly with Ola Brun, our creative director, who's still my business partner now and one of the founders of Nomadic Resorts. And the first project we got to do was the, the Treetop Dining Pod. That's really fun. Um, so you were there for 10 years. What made you then decide to, did you start Nomadic after that? Or was there something in between Six Senses and you both launching Nomadic? No, it was, one was consequent of, of the other. Uh, basically, when I was building Son of Akiri, um, it was a very, very elaborate project. You know, the private runways, Viva speedboats, jetties, 
vegetable gardens, uh, pig farm. We had, it was really, really complicated. And the villas were, you know, kind of $6 million a pop kind of things. And at one point we had this sort of 1,200 workers on site at the same oh. time. And at the end of the project, I got together with Anthony Payton, who was the opening GM, Olav, who was the architect or one of the architects on the project. And we kind of did a, an internal post-mortem. And in that post-mortem, we asked ourselves, you know, if you were to do this again, you know, how would you do it? And what came out of that conversation, which was a fairly inebriated, quite fun affair with a lot of kind <laughs> of Thai seafood and dodgy whiskey, um, and what, what what came out of it was basically that, you know, the future of this industry would be modular construction. So uh, prefabricated buildings that could be manufactured in a controlled environment and then shipped to these remote locations and installed by a small team of, of, of technically proficient people as opposed to having tons and tons of these laborers around. And that meant that, you know, you could do a much more precise kind of installation of, of, of the tents and uh, also it was a significantly lower footprint in terms of its uh, ecological impact, but also much quicker, which was important. And then what we concluded was that if you could disassemble those buildings, then not only would you have a lower, longer term life cycle analysis and environmental footprint, but you would also be able to get permissions for things more easily, right? So if you can take a hotel room to pieces and put it in a container and take it somewhere else, there was a kind of interesting angle in that. And that was really why we called the company Nomadic Resorts. So I founded it in 2011. I was still working at Six Senses, so it was a bit naughty. But, um, you know, and what I did is I recruited the best, you know, designers and engineers that I'd worked with at Six Senses and offered them equity in, in Nomadic. So I still got the same same people are still involved now, really. Yeah. And... So, okay. So going back, I mean, watching that come together, like 1200 people, you know, runways, all the, all the things that you had to do to make that resort successful. You, so you thought there was an easier way, right? And so that's what you're going to do with Nomadic. So looking back, have you guys kind of figured that out over the last 10 years? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, yes, I think we have actually. To be fair, it took... I sometimes joke, I sometimes say it's taken me 10 years to pitch a tent uh, and it's not entirely untrue. So, but, but basically it was much more te technically sophisticated than we'd supposed. So we started out with like this cool idea of doing a cocoon type tent, you know, with insulation and all the kind of elements and facilities and uh, amenities you'd have in a traditional luxury hotel room, but fabricated in a completely different way. Where that led you know, that led to uh, thermal modeling software, computational fluid dynamics, membrane analysis, and, you know, structural engineering for storm events and ballistic profiling of things that could hit a tent skin. And it, it, it has become very technical, I suppose, is the simplest word. So the kind of products that we're developing now, you know, are, I suppose, top of the game in terms of the actual... Um, design methodology going into the to what we do and, and I, I think we've got probably some of the best engineers in the world who work with us in that particular uh, area so have i done have we succeeded i think we got very close with wild coast tented lodge in sri lanka that was a real kind of uh that was a real 
test of, of, of what we learned and how whether we were able to execute. And I think we passed that with flying colours. Could have done it a bit faster in retrospect, but it was a difficult place and we were working with 120 local fishermen as opposed to, you know, having tons of, you know, experienced tradesmen. So it was a bit of a, there were some other challenges associated with that, but that was a great, great experience to work with the community. Yeah. And what, so have you just had to teach yourself all this? Have you brought in experts? You know, like, I mean, it, it sounds very complicated. So how have you like taught yourself and, you know, research is one thing, but then actually being able to do it if it's so technical, how has that worked and, you know, to, to make sure that these are a success? So basically we, we recruit the best people in that, in each field. So that's how we did it. We just, uh, we found the, the, you know, the guy who's the most experienced safari lodge installer in South Africa. We found, um, a German technician for membrane installation. We found, uh, XCO2 Energy, who are our partners who were very proficient in environmental design. And then, of course, Olav is much more technical than me. <laughs> um, I can barely make my computer work. And so he he's always been really at the forefront of of, uh, of the design side of the business, I guess. And I've taken more of a, a kind of business development approach, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And you, you have a term for it, right? A, t- a certain type of architecture, right? Yeah, we've got different kinds of uh, approaches that we use. Um, one of them is is basically a thing called biophilic design. Yep. And um, biophilic design is basically to tune into man's inherent need to communicate with nature. So to put it in a very simple way, <laughs> uh, in prehistory, you know, the caveman who could remember where the mushrooms were had a an advantage over the kind of less environmentally aware cavemen who got lost in the woods for three days. So basically, human beings have this innate need to be able to uh, interact with their natural environment. And, you know, quite early on, I mean, this was like 2011, 2012, I read a book about that. And uh, we integrated that biophilic design principle into our into our projects. And now that's become something that's really uh, a little bit more common. But I think we're still at the tip of the iceberg of what that actually means and how you can produce these wellness environments that uh, that can improve people's health as opposed to trying to you know, mitigate the, the bad stuff. Um, we now think that there's a, a kind of positive design opportunity to really be able to um, to take it that whole wellness architecture to a new level. And that's quite an exciting thing to do. And we call that salutogenic architecture. Yeah. And why has this become such an important mission and goal for the two of you? You know, I think that there's a very simple thing about this, right? Is that basically, you know, the culture that we live in, uh, it's quite an atomized culture. And, uh, and you know, a lot of it kind of promotes anxiety, loneliness. I think social media imbues people with a sense of inferiority um, or concern or worry, you know. You don't have a six pack, whatever it is, you know, all of those things, uh, I think cause people a lot of um, anxiety. And, and I think that there's going to be an epidemic of, uh, of mental health concerns in the future. And I, I think that the wellness community generally 
has had a funny kind of role in that, isn't it? We saw a certain side of the wellness community express itself during the COVID pandemic. Um, and then there's, uh, but what I think is, I think we need a more human, uh, a more sensitive type of approach to personal development and, and, uh, and well-being, really. Yeah. How do you think that hospitality and design specifically can help have a role in influencing mental health? So, you know, one of the things I did learn six years ago, well, I, I'm not a spa guy. I mean, I'll go to have a massage like once every once a year, maybe. To sort of, usually because it's been given to me as a birthday present or Christmas present, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I'm not like a naturally, you know, one of those sort of wellness insiders. Uh, but what I do know is that there's a, a lot of talk about longevity and about, uh, you know, the three or four kind of horsemen of the apocalypse kind of illnesses. You know, we're talking about Alzheimer's, uh, heart disease, cancer, these kind of things. And we're seeing more and more of these uh, kind of influences and podcasts um, expressing their, you know, lifestyle improvements for these kinds of things. But in reality, what I think is going to happen is that you'll get these kind of niches that develop. Okay. And, uh, and there'll be hospitality projects that are developed to cater to the needs of very specific groups of people. And this is something I, I really enjoy working on as well, actually, um, which is, let's say, okay, you know, you might like to do yoga, right? And you might have a yoga teacher in New York where you'll have really cool yoga stuff, I'm sure. And you want to go on holiday and you want to have a kind of experience where you can continue your practice on holiday or may, maybe even improve your practice. Um, and then you'd go somewhere like Playa Viva and you'd go and have your yoga experience in Mexico and you'd have excellent teachers. And what I think will happen is that basically the hospitality sector is going to kind of split up into little niches of, of things. So you'll have, you know, your, your kind of yoga retreat for the yogis. You'll have uh, one of the ones we're really enjoying focusing on is the adventure sports activities kind of niche. You know, people going hiking, people mountain biking, surfing, kite surfing. I think that's going to be a huge thing because all of those activities, you know, you have, uh, particularly if you do them with other people, is, you know, you can get this sense of flow, uh, which is uh, flow-like experiences. So you can have this kind of enhanced uh, personal experience. And what's interesting about those kind of flow states is that, the people who do them together can commune about that range. So you can develop a sense of community around those experiences, um, be it yoga, be it kite surfing, be it mountain biking. Those things, you know, can create uh, an environment, a secure environment to share your experiences in, within a hospitality uh, uh, venue. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing that we think is going to to really uh, expand in the years to come. And what's interesting about that further, even more interesting about that, is that basically you, I think we all know, we've all been to one of those kind of soulless resorts where nobody ever talks to each other and it's almost impossible to have a conversation and everybody's too cool anyway, right? They're too cool to, to sit down and, you know, have a drink with somebody else or around a campfire. You know, the whole thing is is not curated to that 
fulfillment. So what we're trying to do is say, okay, let's take uh, core experiences, develop the ideal environment in which to perform those experiences, and then create these kind of nodes or hubs where people can then hang out and actually meet each other. And then, and then you know, if you go to another resort, you become a community. So if you go to another camp, tight surfing in Tanzania, you know, you can hook up with other people. And there you really can create something that's, that's much more unique and, and, and a lot more impactful than your traditional vacation experience. Got it. I love it. So it's building building a community of sorts. Yeah, but not in that kind of, you know, loyalty reward card, right. whatever thing. This is uh, at a kind of more deeper psychological level. Um, and, uh, you know, you can consider these things to be like almost physical refuges um, where people can explore both their inner landscape and, and also, you know, the ecosystem in which the, the place is located. Yeah. Well, let's talk about those places because, I mean, where you build and how you build is beautiful. I mean, the one I'm... Um, I was looking at before we got on the phone, the new one you're building in Mauritius that's uh, uh, overlooking a really amazing kite surfing spot. Yeah, that's on Balaba. That's a, a, a great project. Um, that's Well, that's the first one that we're going to do under our own brand, actually. We're going to manage the hotel ourselves. So that's quite an exciting change of vibe as well. Um, so basically what it is is that on Balaba is a, a mixed-use development with you know residential um some apartments good restaurant etc but it's it's on a on a slope directly overlooking le mans uh which is one of the best kite surfing spots in the world so what we've been doing there is is kind of developing the ultimate uh kite surfing refuge where you know you have this sort of fantastic swimming pool and bar area we've got a vegetable garden on the roof of the structure we've got this kind of spa tucked underneath the swimming pool and uh, that's going to be a really exciting uh, venture for us, both in terms of it'll be challenging, but it's uh, it's also got a sense of community in the sense that you can buy an eco villa within that community as well, which is so there's 14 villas for sale as well. Uh, one very organic thing with green roof and kind of plants hanging all over the place. Um, so that's that's going to be you know that's going to be a, a new departure for us, I guess. Yeah, that's exciting. And I love like, you know, the building undulates. So it almost like is one with the with its surrounding, right? Because it's like a covered green roof and it almost many. I mean, a lot of your buildings blend. So, I mean, which is harder to do architecturally, but I mean, but beautiful and that it's like truly respecting its surroundings. Yeah, I think that that's really a key part of our work. And, and this is to do with biomimicry and this is to do with other kind of design principles that we've adopted over the years. But I think there's also a question of sensitivity, you know, is that at the end of the day, you know, you have to take responsibility um, for what you develop. And uh, for us, integrating things into the landscape is is really a core part of that. So we've done a lot of green buildings with uh, green roofs and integrated into hillsides. We've done um, a lot of tents because of their in- inherent low impact. And then, of course, we've we've worked a lot with bamboo because it is the most sustainable of natural building materials, I think, generally. Um, so, yeah, that's something I think we'll always do. And I think it's a, a part of our DNA is to, is to kind of um, create impressions but leaving light footprints or something like that. Um, 
something along those lines is, is to really try and respect basically the environmental con- and social context in which we, we we operate. Yeah. And so you said this, this resort's a new departure for you. So you've built others, but some are with other operators, some are, you know, part, you know, like a restaurant, part of a bigger project, you know, an overwater restaurant. So why the shift now? Why do you think it's time for you guys to like kind of go off on your own, quote unquote? I know we'll, we'll always design stuff for other people. So we design for many of the big hotel companies at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, there'll always be a need for that kind of uh, slightly unusual, atypical building typologies. Um, and and I, I think, you know, there, there, there never, there's no question that we will continue to do that with, with partners and clients who we've worked with over the years. But what was really the kind of initiator of this is we realized that there was a significant gap in the in the industry, right? There's a a, a gap in the market, um, and that often the hospitality industry is pointed pointed at as you know guilty carbon footprint flights, you know you're bad, you know don't go on holiday, stay at home, you know, sleep sleep on a hard floor, and you know don't have a feather mattress, whatever, but uh, what we, you know, this really came from Anthony and I, you know, working out what were the friction points in the traditional luxury resort environment. And the conclusion we came to was that basically it's not necessarily about the traditional parameters of luxury, you know, high thread count sheets, you know, air conditioning, flat screen TVs. I mean, everybody has that stuff pretty much now, you know, um, not everybody, obviously, but within, you know, our market or our target market. So what we, the question we asked ourselves is, you know, could uh, a hospitality project be a vector of good? So that question was an interesting one because we concluded that actually, yes, it could. You know, if you were to plant a tree in an endangered environment for every guest who slept a night in your camp, if you could provide local restaurants, wellness practitioners, guides with gainful, fairly paid, dignified employment. If you could celebrate local cuisine and local culture, then potentially the impact of that is quite different from, uh, you know, your traditional luxury resort. And I think the time's now come for that to come to fruition. And we, you know, Sonu did a tremendous amount of pioneering work in, in kind of changing mindsets and perceptions and i think that now there's an opportunity to kind of take some of those considerations but maybe withdraw the ultra luxury part the ultra luxury part is a bit complicated because you know if you're in a 400 square meter villa that's fully air conditioned you're going to need a lot of solar panels to cool it so what we're trying to do is is kind of extract the essence of the best experiences you can have within those environments and make it a little bit more accessible to normal people, you know, who don't have hedge funds. Well, thank you for that. Um, and do you, uh, what do you think is luxury though today? Cause I'm curious. I mean, I do think like the settings that you're in and the spaces you're creating are luxury in, in themselves, right? Cause you know, you, it is a remote destination. It is, you know, kind of that, mental health break right so like is that also a form of luxury in its own right yeah i think you know luxury and and has changed significantly right so 
those traditional parameters that I mentioned earlier are very common. And I think that COVID actually introduced new ideas about what a luxurious experience could be. And uh, I think in you know, fresh air, unpolluted fresh air, that's a luxury for many people, right? There's many people in the world breathing day in, day out, completely toxic, polluted air. I think silence or at least, you know, nature sounds as opposed to cars and blaring horns and police cars and televisions and whirring fans from air conditioning. I think that's, that's also luxury. I think personal space, you know, anybody who's had to take the Metro on a regular basis knows that actually, you know, personal physical space is also kind of something really that's, quite nice um and then i'd probably add to that now um this notion of a curated physical experience in nature um you know that could be hiking to the top of a mountain that could be sailing on a traditional boat with a local fisherman to a little island and having a grilled fish that could be you know um kite surfing an amazing wave or break or whatever it is I think all of those things now, there's a new kind of uh, opulence. And we're seeing this a lot. You know, we get contacted by different people who are, who are trying to generate these eco-communities eco and have these kind of incredible places where people can do, you know, extreme sports. They have the most incredible fitness requirements now. Um, absolutely curated nutrition, having, you know, how many different people are eating different stuff? You know, one guy's... Uh, um it's called the uh, paleo another person's vegan you know having a, a curated uh food and beverage offering that corresponds with your preferences that's also another kind of luxury yeah i totally agree sorry i hit mute but yeah, i totally agree i think you know and i think people just you know time is luxury right like these days like just having that time and you know the that escape so i think what you all are creating is is really quite interesting because I think it's what people are craving for these days. Yeah. And then also, you know, being able to enjoy those things with like-minded people is also a huge, huge thing. And I think Sonia again was good at that stuff. And other groups are good at that. I think Habitat has done a good job in that, in creating a kind of community of, of people with, you know, a shared perception or a shared, uh, shared sense of fun maybe as well. You know, maybe yeah. that's also a thing, you know, having fun is also yeah. a luxury actually. That's probably the ultimate luxury. Yeah. Exactly. Um, what is it that about what you do that you love the most about, you know, is it which part of the process? Is it, you know, the actual building? Is it finding, you know, this, the property? What What is it that you love about what you do the most? Um, yeah, I, that's an interesting one. Um, it's, I know what it's not. It's not the kind of accounting and uh, <laughs> and business administration stuff. That's definitely not something that I... I thrive on. Uh, I think it's that first moment where someone gives you a challenge to develop a certain idea on a site and you have this kind of very, very free-flowing um, brainstorming and ideation process. This is where we wander around looking at shells, trying to find kind of bird's nests and sort of wandering around. And, you know, quite often they think we're, clients think we're completely crazy because, you know, everybody else is looking at the mountain and the views and we're wandering around looking, you know, at mushrooms and uh you know insect bodies um 
but I, I think that, that that side of the equation, I think, really, really is a lot of fun. And, and when you get to present those ideas in, initially, it's a very strange dynamic that with the client. So I remember Wild Coast Tented Lodge, we came up with, it was a pretty crazy idea to just sort of build these giant hollow boulders out of bamboo. And we did this kind of very conceptual presentation to the owner, the CEO, and the project director. And then there was like complete silence. You know, one of those uncomfortable silences that goes on just a bit too long. Yeah. And then the guy goes, we're in, let's do this. <laughs> and, you know, those kind of moments, those moments are pretty good. When you can that kind of, um, yeah, pull somebody over um, into your way of thinking, I think those are quite good moments. And I think the same applied to the uh, Madihia restaurant for Bunyan Tree. That was like, you know, very, very far out idea. Yeah, talk a little bit about it because it's, it's absolutely beautiful. But I mean, the shape and, you know, the structure, just talk a little bit about what you created and how you created it and why. So, you know, the, the mission given to us by the entry team was to develop an iconic uh, dining experience that could help them relaunch Vabin Faru as, as, a, as one of the, you know, key culinary destinations in the Maldives. And, um, you know, it was actually during COVID as well, so we couldn't go to the site, which was a pain. But I knew the Maldives very well because I'd worked at Son of a Gili and Son of a Fushi before, and I'm also a scuba diver. So I knew I knew what lies beneath, <laughs> and um, and basically the we we've done we've done actually you know we've actually done three buildings based on different members of the Ray family now. So this is kind of a weird situation. We've done a manta ray, we've done a modular ray, and now we've done a pink whiptail ray. So it was actually in a very strange way a kind of uh, natural progression, and I, I think maybe it will be one of the last ones we do of that particular biomimicry influence. Um, but what came out was uh, we want to do a, a kind of flat array. Uh, the pink whip, whip tail rays are kind of have a flatter body and a longer tail. Yep. And uh, so we also wanted to experiment with a new kind of structural system using bamboo called a, a hyperparaboloid um, column. It's a very techie thing. Um, and then I think, you know, where Olav really showed, you know, his genius, to be honest, was to to, to, to create the tail of the building that kind of wound back over the jetty because there was already an existing jetty and structure there. And the idea was to create something amazing in that spot. And I think that idea of having that shingled tail that winds back along the, the jetty was was really something, a little bit of fairy dust sprinkled onto the thing, I think. And was super pleased with the outcome. It looks amazing. Yeah, and also big big shout out to Olivier Betting from Asali Bali, who were the builders, who did a absolutely fantastic job. So we built a lot of stuff ourselves, but this time it was a, a Bali contractor who did the build, and yeah, amazing. Yeah, what is it like to constantly have to like reinvent and rejigger? I mean, is that what you kind of thrive on? You know, there's no one formula for what you what you guys do. No, I mean, you know. That comes up a bit, actually. That that's <laughs> it's not really a problem for us, yeah. to be honest. Um, Olive and I have a kind of uh, compatibility in terms of our approach to design, um, 
And you just have to sit us down in a room with the challenge or even in a restaurant and a bar. I mean, I've, we've drawn things literally on the back of napkins um, many times, actually. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm not exclusively a designer. So I also, you know, I'm interested in anthropology. I'm interested in wellness. I'm interested in politics. I'm interested in the cultural dynamics of what's happening at the moment. So all of those things kind of come into the mix a little bit as well. But um, I think the, the the principal thing is that we don't, you know, say to ourselves, oh, yeah, we've got to do a building that kind of is iconic or splashy or bling or whatever. We don't really work like that. Basically, what we do is we we basically take our inspirations from very fundamental things. Um, and that that's a kind of critical thing. So, you know, um, nature is the source of all true knowledge. Right. So it's never going to dry up, right? The way that we design is never going to dry up because there'll always be, I hope, you know, an inspiring seashell, uh, an interesting palm front, you know, a weird little tub, you know, tuba-like growth on the side of a tree. Or, you know, one of the ones I want to do for ages is do a whole kind of series of mushroom-formed buildings. Um, so there's the, it's endless, right? It's endless. And, and, and that's the fun bit, I think, you know, is, is finding the the little quirky uh, alternative structure that will fit and will also satisfy the client's requirements because you know, that's also important. Things have to be commercially successful, right? You can't just do something that's you know looks great but it sucks. <laughs> so, you can't do that, right? Otherwise, people would tell us to go away. They tell us to go home. So it's actually quite important to us, strange enough. Uh, that things actually work technically. So people don't realize that side of the equation, but we are from the hospitality industry and we do understand, you know, back of house requirements. We understand staffing. We understand manning requirements, ergonomics. We All of this stuff might not look like it's integrated, but it is very much. Is there one project that you really would like to do that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I think there is one thing I'd like to do. Uh, and actually we're doing it now. So I am... Um, it's just a question of time. But we're not doing it in the way that I'd initially imagined. So one of the things was to do a floating resort. Um, but at the moment, we're doing a series of houseboats in Kerala, in the backwaters of Kerala. They've asked us to kind of relook at the traditional Kerala houseboat, which is a, a genius design anyway, so that's a real tough ask. Uh, but I think, you know, one of the things I would like to do in the future is, is instead of doing overwater villas with a kind of structure, I like to do stuff that pro properly floats. Um, when I many, many years ago, I went and visited the Murgy Archipelago in Myanmar. Uh, and this was, this was when it was kind of a adventurous spot, but I think it still is now, to be honest. But, uh, and this is one of the most last unspoiled seascapes in the world. And there are these people there called the Makan Sea Gypsies. And they're the last, uh, the last boat dwelling nomads on the planet. Wow. And those guys had these amazing kind of houseboats, quite a simple design, but they would, e each member of the family, of an extended family, would have its own little boat and they'd, they'd tie them together and they'd kind of pull them together. So your whole caravan of these boats. So I think, you know, and floating restaurant, bar, rooms, spa, go full at full, full Monty on that. Yeah, I think I'd love to do that. And And I also think it will happen quite soon because... Uh, prime beachfront real estate is now very expensive. And, you know, it's just, and, and also, you know, 
overwater construction is actually quite environmentally uh, offensive in some ways in terms of you know effects in oceanography and uh, you know the effects on erosion and etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think you know that would be one of the next ones that i hope that we'll get the opportunity to do maybe on a lake or or near a waterfall would be fantastic yeah, yeah. you do some kind of crazy floating experience I mean, yeah i'd love to do that that sounds amazing was that, which one of your projects has been the most challenging Oh, that's easy. Uh, that's Wild Coast Tented Lodge in Sri Lanka. Um, and the reason for that was just because of the scope of work that we had on that project. So we were arch the architects, we were the landscape designers, we were the interior designers, we were the MEP designers, and we were the main contractor for the bamboos and the tents. Wow. And it was our first major opportunity uh, to do a significant project we were basically a startup so i was wearing you know dozens of hats on that construction site and it wasn't an easy place to work you know southern sri lanka super remote location full of incredibly dangerous animals you know everything from crocodiles to leopards to cobras to you know the, the, the bears it was, it was like something out of the jungle book no kidding um so that was in itself very stressful to be a very, very long way from civilization. And because we were so far away, we were super dependent on the local community who were also working for us. And we were working very, very long hours. So I was getting up at five, collecting the, the boys, and then we were getting to site by like 5.30 and we were starting work at 5.30 because it was so hot during the afternoon that we couldn't, you know, we had to take this kind of long break. Um, and I, I'd taken massive risk. It was a huge gamble. I'd said, you know, I jacked in my job at Six Senses where I was very comfortable and very well remunerated and had loads and loads of different advantages and lived in Bangkok. And, you know, and I basically jacked it in and said, okay, we're going to try this. And uh, that, was, <laughs> that, that was a lot of pressure uh, on my wife and my family as well, oh, yeah. uh, who lived in literally in a kind of, we called it the shack. Uh, it was literally a kind of open walled structure. Um, it was quite nice. He had a, it was quite near the sea. It, it was actually quite nice, but it was seriously, seriously rudimentary uh, in terms of the actual, you know, living standards that most people would consider acceptable. Yep. It was well, well below. Uh, you know, no water. She's a good woman. She's a good woman. Oh yeah, she is. Now. She's a real trooper. <laughs> she wouldn't bad. believe it. Some of her friends have said stuff when they've turned up in some of the places where I put that woman, and uh, literally wanted to kill me. Um, on several occasions, actually, strangely enough. Um, yeah, so she's been she's been fantastic. Uh, but it but it worked. You figured it all out. Were you ever? Yeah. Was there an, ever well, uh, animal encounter? Oh God, there were loads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, uh, one, yeah, I mean, I've had loads of animals in council. You don't even go there. But um, in Yala itself, oh, the the boss's car. Uh, we were doing an inspection of the of the mock up room, and on the way back, the the client had like a really fancy orange Range Rover, like autobiography, which is sort of a seriously fancy car. And we were in like a crappy old Tata Mahindra pickup truck driving behind right and we'd done all this work and we were going back and then suddenly i saw this crocodile come out of the woods and kind of try and nip at the tires of his car that was one of them then another time just an elephant just suddenly appeared uh, like a proper elephant not like uh, not an african elephant obviously asian elephant was smaller but you know when 
people have elephant encounters, they go riding on elephants and that kind of thing. That's all fun. But an actual wilderness elephant encounter is quite different. Um, and then one time in Thailand, uh, I was marking out one of the villa sites and um, I was with the surveyor and I asked the surveyor, I said, um, you know, have you seen any snakes in here? And he said, yeah, absolutely loads. And I said, uh, how big? And he went like that. And he was actually talking about the girth of the snake as opposed to the length. So it was a good kind of 25 meter diameter snake. So that means you're talking about something that's five, six meters long and you know, could probably kill you quite easily. Um, I also had an encounter with King Cobra. Yes, don't, let's not go there because it's, it, okay. it's ended. I've also had flesh eating bacteria as well, which I got in Sri Lanka. Oh. So uh, yeah, I've, I've had a, have a few, few adventure experiences, put it like that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> ah, I love it. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> where, where do we go from there? <laughs> I guess, <clears throat> I guess taking this leap of faith, I mean, looking back, you know, would, what would you wish you would have known then that, you know, now, or I always ask is ignorance bliss. Yeah. One of the things, and I probably going to make me sound like a little bit of a rotten fellow, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that I hadn't understood initially when I started on this was the implication of air conditioning. Right? I didn't have a kind of technical knowledge. You know, I was mainly in doing landscape design. I didn't really understand what we call MEP and HVAC engineering. And, you know, we built these massive villas in the forest. And okay, we did our best to make it as sustainable as possible. But the actual truth of the thing was that fundamentally, Massive air-conditioned spaces is not good for the environment. And I probably wish I'd known that at the beginning. Um, and I probably, I wouldn't have got very far, to be honest. Everybody was told me to shut up. But I, I would have liked to have been able to push back a little bit more on air conditioning right from the outset. And now I'm in a position where we can do that. But uh, had I really understood, you know, the longer-term sustainability impacts of, of, of mass air conditioning, if you look at, Paul Hawkins' latest book, Drawdown, talks about what are the major kind of climate threats. And they're not, it's not flying in an aircraft. That's a bad thing, obviously, and, you know, you shouldn't do it. But living in a fully air-conditioned, large-volume space and using air conditioning in a significant way is, 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 a, massive, is a massive thing. Hmm. We've got to learn to live with our environment, particularly if it's changing at the rate that it is now. Right, 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 right. So how are you combating that as you build? So we use principles of bioclimatic design. Uh, so we try and develop buildings so that they, uh, they're integrated not only into the, the physical environment, but they're also um, sensitive to the meteorological conditions, right? So we try and create naturally shaded places. We try and minimize um, you know, the footprint of the building, but also we try and use insulation in an appropriate way. Uh, there's a thing called computational fluid dynamics, which is very interesting is you can actually kind of project. Uh, you can actually project the airflow of, uh, through a building um, using a, a computer model. Uh, I'm sorry about that. There's a little bit of noise in the background. Um, so, yeah, th those kind of things, I think, you know, that's part of responsible design and that's part of, of, of being a good global citizen. And, and also, you know, leaving a legacy that you can 
you can live with, right? Or you can deal with. I think that's the other part of it is there's many, many things that we can now use. We have incredible digital tools available to us in terms of BIM, uh, Revit. Um, you know, we have these kind of incredible tools. And I think, you know, now is the time to stop building, you know, just fully air-conditioned cubes because Le Corbusier said so, you know, 50 years ago. Right. Right, right. And how you, and you're working in these, you know, extremely remote places, as you mentioned, how do you get all the supplies there and everything that you need? What are those logistics like? You want to know the simple answer? Yes. A complete nightmare. <laughs> so <laughs> that was why we started doing the, the modular buildings because, you know, you're missing three, eight millimeter, three, one, six stainless steel bolts in you know tanzania or namibia right yeah you can have 20 people sitting around for two weeks because you don't have your stuff together right, right? uh so that was i mean i've seen some crazy stuff i've seen uh glass being unloaded off Adoni in the Maldives where $65,000 worth of glass just fell off the boat and smashed completely and put the project back six months I've had situations where I've had like literally hundreds of people waiting for a boat to arrive with some very simple tools. Uh, so that's really the art form. And uh, I'm not a master of those dark arts. I have people who are, right, which is yep. to be able to do tool lists, material lists, like fully, fully detailed. And yep. then have also to add it in, you know, contingency to make sure that you don't run out. That's the other thing. And then... <laughs> You get curveballs as well. Like a certain moment when I was building Wild Coast Tented Lodge, I was like, how many of these self-drilling galvanized screws do I need? This is insane. I was importing them as well because they weren't available in Sri Lanka. I was like, this is insane. Okay, there's 35,000 shingles. I understand that. But I calculated this, right? And I'm not that bad at maths. And then, of course, I went to the village and went and hung around the village and started really looking at the local architecture. And I realized that everybody had kind of built these extensions of their houses using, uh, you know, galvanized self-screwing uh, screws. So, uh, and obviously each day they've been just pocketing a few and, you know, I'm not going to chuck any stones because I actually, <laughs> they're nice people, but, you know, things like that. Uh, yeah, that's a real headache. So that, that, that takes a certain kind of personality to be able to do that effectively. Yeah. And so are you, so like your, your pods and your tents that you're creating, so you create them offsite and then you bring them. Yeah. Yeah. So because we can then, we can roll the steel to particular diameters. We can check the quality. We can check welding. Yep. We can, you know, uh, and now we're getting better at this. Hopefully, uh, you know, we're coming into a, a kind of a new era. Um, so yeah. And, and also you're not affected by the weather, right? So if you have a traditional construction contract, you have a uh, variations associated with the weather. The contractor comes back, she says, I can't work for three days because it's raining. And you eliminate those kind of pressures. So what it all means, essentially. So actually, I read a book about this. This is how I got into this. It's called Refabricating Architecture by Kieran Timberlake. I read it in 2012, I think, whilst I was doing Son of Akiri. And that was the kind of click moment for me. Guy compared traditional sequential construction methodology with how you build a Boeing 747. And a Boeing 747 is basically a computer model with, you know, a million different parts. But those million different parts are all 
manufactured in parallel and brought to one place and assembled. Whereas the traditional construction methodologies, you know, you kind of you do the excavation, you do the site clearance, you pour the fittings, you and and it's ba 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 ba. So what we realized is okay, that takes a lot of time. So um, if you can basically compress the sourcing of all of those elements and then have some super smart dude um, working out uh, exactly how how that's going to be measured, yep. stored, distributed, then you can basically squish the timeline. Got it. And this is what we've been all about, right? We've been saying, okay, it took. I've worked on projects for like five years. I worked on Sonic Security five years. From the in concept design through to the opening was five years easy. And so what we said is maybe there's a different way of doing this. Maybe there's a smarter way of doing this. Maybe we can use technology in a different way. And maybe we're going to be able to do this in like 10 months or 12 months. Right. And that's a little bit the holy grail. And uh, I hope I hope one day we'll be able to do something like that in, yeah. in, in that kind of time frame, I guess. Right. Well, yeah, because you're still having to build other structures, right? Like it's not just the tents or the pods. There's still some sort of, you know, on-site building that you need to do. Yeah, people get this all wrong all, all, wrong all the time. So there's also what we call the reticulation, all of the piping, the generators, the wastewater treatment, the restaurants, the bars, the cooking equipment, all the other consultants. Yeah, so it's it's not, you know, it's never going to be, a, you know, a kind of uh, package uh, system. But I think we can get to a point where we are significantly better in the way that we deliver projects for clients. And I think it's, I think it, it would be extremely desirable for clients to be able to, to have a more reliable project development process with a more predictable budget and a more predictable timeframe. I think it would be a huge uh, competitive advantage for some companies. A hundred percent. Well, I hate to end this conversation, but we always end the podcast with the question that is the podcast. So what has been your greatest lesson learned along the way? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's something like, I think particularly interesting in this digital AI universe that we now inhabit is that I've realized that true beauty requires small imperfections in those little imperfections, there's the humanity. So I don't know, you know, there's a word in Japanese called kintsugi, and you might have seen this, where they kind of, somebody breaks a teapot, get, probably gets clipped around the ear for it, and then you, you, glue the, you glue the teapot back together with gold to kind of celebrate that imperfection. And I think what I found is that that gold, that kind of adhesive, Right, of, of kind of bringing different things together and being able to connect them, that's probably my greatest lesson learned, is the diversity of connection options there are. I love that. Well, thank you so much for spending the last little bit with us. Um, it's always such a pleasure to to talk with you and hear your your story because um, I think it's a, it's a really quite interesting one and I can't wait to see what you guys do next. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time, Stacey. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Design's What I've Learned. 
If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.